Okay, thank you. That's better. Thanks, Jared. How are you? Good. Um, you guys know, you guys probably know about what happened with Jeremy. Um, got a few burns. Um, so just keep him in prayer. Sounds like he's recovering pretty well, but just keep that in mind. Next week, Cody is going to be sharing. Um, so be ready for that. I'm going to pray. We'll get started. Father, thank you for uh, your presence. Thank you for um, thank you for continuously imparting hunger to us. Thank you for your patience with us when we don't understand. Um, but Father, I ask tonight that um, we'd have our minds expanded, uh, our hearts enlarged, with understanding of what you're capable of doing and uh, what we may be able to be a part of. We love you. We thank you for your word. Amen. So I'm going to... Um, I'm going to ramble a little bit uh, tonight. And um, I had started out <clears throat> looking at some of the elements, um, the valuable elements that are possessed by a person who gets used mightily by God. And throughout Scripture, looking at different cases of the heart position of people who influenced God and caused God to do something. And so I started there, and I started kind of working my way backward, which I kind of tend to do at times. And because I'd, I'd gotten a little bit too down in the weeds, or I'd gotten caught in a little bit of the practical, like how are we going to live to make this come about, or to be positioned rightly when God shows up. And I realized I need to step back a little bit and give a little bit more of a 30,000 foot view, because for some of us, we've been talking and praying and pressing towards some of these things for so long that I forget when other people kind of came into the mix, and what they may or may not know we believe we're pressing toward, and what we know is available that we don't have. And so as I started to realize that, I thought, gee, I should probably back up just a little bit and spend some time talking about, when we talk about hunger, when we talk about pressing, when we talk about crying out, God, give us more, it might be nice to have a little bit of an idea what we're asking for. Yeah? Because, I mean, let's, let's face it, most of us were probably uh, raised on church theology that said, what you see in the church is what you get. Uh, some churches probably taught against the manifestation of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> Others just said, yeah, it can happen. And some went to another extreme that said, it's going to happen all over, but nobody's life is really going to change all that much. So it's, it's just there. Um, and my own, um, my own training when I was young was more just like, we're just doing church. It's, it's spiritual growth. We want to be good people. We want to be Christians. But we're, 
Sure, we'd like to see people get saved. And we talked a lot about evangelism. But beyond that, that was all we knew. It was basically just trying to grow a bigger church. And I think for most of us, we see the world and our influence in the world through a church lens. And what I mean by that is, really the only great change that could come to the world is what can happen through a church or organized missional things that a church might do to make the church get bigger. So the point of evangelism is to get a bigger church. And once you have a bigger church, well, that's about it. That's kind of the end of the road. And so I want to take a little bit of time and explain why I believe that view is mistaken. Okay, so first of all, what we have to understand is that in the New Testament, the church was a new idea, right? It was a new idea. The church was a new idea in the New Testament. It was not an old idea. It was a new idea. For us, it's an old idea. It's been there for 2,000 years. It's really the only thing we know. We also live in a democratic society, which does not help us understand a biblical worldview. A biblical worldview is not democratic. It's authoritarian. It's a kingdom. So when we look at the scripture, we're not looking at a democratic society when we read it, and we're not looking at everything happening through a church land. We're looking like they were at the world through a kingdom perspective. What does that mean? Well, when the law was given, every area of life was spoken about. So when God talked about how they should live, he didn't just talk about how they should worship. He also talked about family. He told them how to do, how do you teach your kids? How do you do business? What do you do when someone breaks a law in the business? He talked about justice. He talked about government. The law was a kingdom perspective that told the Israelites how they should live in every area of life. It wasn't just about worship. And I would assert that most of Christendom today functions in a church mentality where our primary and almost chief perspective and objective is to refine the worship aspect and we leave the rest untouched. And so what I think we're trying to capture again is a kingdom mindset of which the church is one part. The church isn't removed or forgotten. The church is a very important part, but it's one part. So the church becomes one of many different aspects of a kingdom, just like it was in the law and in the Old Testament. So there were business people, and God told them how to do business. There were people that were in government. He told them how to do justice and how to handle those things, and he even had people that were assigned to oversee them. So everything was handled from a kingdom mindset. In addition, when you go through the Old Testament, it was always kingdom against kingdom. You guys remember this? Yeah? No? No one's read the Old Testament. Okay. Um, Shar. Uh, Kingdom against kingdom in the Old Testament. And so they'd go into a new territory, and the kings would come, and they'd fight against them, and they would overcome and conquer because God was with them as long as they're walking with him and not in blatant sin. Excuse me. God would deliver them. They'd be victorious over their enemies. They'd conquer new territory. And now they would change that culture according to their culture. So they would go in, win a battle, plunder the stuff, and then make the people live according to their laws. This was kingdom life. 
This was normal life for the Israeli people, for the Jewish people. Subjugation is a word I talked about last year. And what that means is when two kingdoms conflict, the winning kingdom has power in that territory and they get to subjugate all of the people there according to their laws, their rules. They bring in their currency. They teach them how they do all things according to life. And they would change the entire culture as they work their way back to where they're from. Subjugation. So this is the mindset of the Old Testament. It's also the mindset of the New Testament writers. Before I get into the New Testament, I'm going to give you, I'm going I'm to just list off some scripture. You can check them out for yourself. The second half of Joel 2, the end of Malachi 3 and Malachi chapter 4, the end of Isaiah 61 and Isaiah 62. These are all different portions of scripture in the Old Testament that talk about the growth and the expansion of the church as we near the end of the age. So all of these things are happening. The prophets are speaking to the people and they're saying, guys, there's a remnant here that if you're faithful, God is going to come back. He's going to meet his people. He's going to deliver you. He's going to change everything. You're going to go in. You're going to take over. The Messiah's coming. He's going to rule and reign forever and ever. The line of David is going to be restored to the throne. These are all the things that the Jews of the New Testament would have been hearing as they are raised and being trained as rabbis. Remember, Virtually all Jewish children in the times of the New Testament were taught, most of them could recite the entire Pentateuch by the time they were about six years old. So it's not like us, you know, where if, you know, my four-year-old can sing Jesus Loves Me, I'm, you know, writing a blog about it. These kids were like literally trained, they're six years old and they could recite the Pentateuch. So their training in the scriptures were drastically different than ours. So these guys would have been hearing stories about the promises of God. What was the promise of Abraham? That nations are going to come from you, Abraham. Kings are going to come from you, Abraham. Your descendants will be a blessing to all people, Abraham. Who are the descendants of Abraham? Yeah, Ryan is. And Mark. We're the descendants of Abraham. That's us. But if you, if you, at least for me, and maybe this isn't the case for any of you, maybe you guys are all like, this is so obvious. Um, but at least for me, when I was told I was a descendant of Abraham, that meant I got the spiritual part of Abraham's inheritance, but I didn't get anything else. I shouldn't expect anything else. And I don't feel like that's fair, and I don't think it's right. And part of the reason going further is in the New Testament, You have the disciples. So these guys are being trained in the promises of God. They're expecting a Messiah. Even from childhood, this is what they're taught to wait for. Why? Because they're imprisoned. They don't rule in their nation. They have an enemy king who rules over them. They don't get to make laws. They're not in power. They're not in control. They're not wealthy. They're not taking over other nations. They're not living in the promise. So they know these things and they're taught these things because they know there's more for them than what they have. There's more for the people of Israel than what we have now living under the power of Rome. This is the, 
This is the setting of the New Testament when Jesus is about to arrive on the scene. So they're waiting for Messiah to come, not to give them spiritual blessings and not to teach them how to worship and have better services in the tabernacle. They're waiting for a Messiah that they know is going to be a king. They're waiting for a warrior, literally, to come and lead the people in battle against the Romans to conquer and to lead Israel back to being the world's superpower, similar to the United States of the 1980s, the most powerful nation on earth. That's what they expect from God as their inheritance as children of Abraham. I don't even know. I'm looking at my notes. I'm so far from my notes. So, this is, the, this is the position of people that are watching when Jesus comes onto the scene. So now Jesus comes onto the scene, right? These guys are awaiting this Messiah. Now, maybe you guys have heard of like Judas Maccabees. Judas Maccabees was one who they thought he might be the Messiah beforehand because he and his five sons had gone in and won battle after battle after battle after battle against Romans that held power in their region, and, and they were amazing warriors, and the, they started to believe, these, this guy might be the Messiah. This guy might be the Messiah. Because he was doing what they expected their Messiah would do. And he wasn't, obviously. So now Jesus comes on the scene, and these guys have been waiting for a king to come and lead them back to their rightful place at the top of everything. They know that when the Messiah comes, the government will rest on his shoulders. So our king is going to have the the government of the globe resting on his shoulders. I want to be really close to that guy. So now do you understand when the disciples are coming and they're asking Jesus, can I sit right at your right hand? Can I be with you when you come into your kingdom? They're picking out their seat in power, ruling and reigning in the earth. They're not dumb. They're mistaken, kind of. But they expected Jesus to come in and to go riding on a charger into Jerusalem and take over his rightful rule as king of all the earth. Because let's, let's, be, let's remember that Jesus is coming back as a ruler over all the earth. And he is coming back on a charger. And the government will rest on his shoulders. See, we look at what the disciples thought and we kind of snicker. But they're a lot closer than what we really are. They just had the timing wrong. Jesus will rule and reign over all the earth, and we will rule and reign with him in positions of power. But it's going to look different than what the disciples thought. So the disciples are expecting Jesus to come in, take over, and then start to establish his kingdom. His kingdom goes far beyond just the the practical methods of worship in the temple. His kingdom would affect how they did business. It would affect the currency. It would affect the education. It would affect the government. It would affect the justice system. It would affect the, the culture and the arts and the entertainment and how they did all of those things. That's what a kingdom did. You didn't go in to an enemy territory, win a fight, win the battle, conquer it, and then put your temple in there and leave everything as is. You changed everything about how they did life entirely. That's kingdom thinking. That's how kingdoms operate. And so... 
you have Jesus arriving onto this scene with this mindset, and they're expecting this guy, he's going to take us from where we are now into power where we belong. Because they're right again. They do belong there. They're children of promise. Well, Jesus didn't come here at that time to take over all things, to, to draw, run into Jerusalem, take over. He didn't, that was not his purpose in that time. But it was his purpose, ultimately, they were right. And he's still going to come back and do that. Now, why do I tell you all that? Because when Jesus comes in, he's having to address this type of thinking when he's instructing his disciples. So he's not having to convince them that great things are going to happen because he's arrived. That's what's so different about where they were to where we are. Where we are today, we've gotten so used to how church is that it takes a lot of work to convince people that something greater is available and should be the normal. For the disciples, they weren't the ruling power in the earth, so they knew something greater should be and was available. They'd read the prophets. They had studied them. They could probably recite them to you. They're waiting for the the great and terrible day of the Lord. They're waiting for the outpouring of the, the second rain, the spring rain, and the autumn rain. They're waiting for the outpouring of the Spirit upon all flesh where your sons and daughters will prophesy. This is what they expected to happen when the Messiah arrived. So when Jesus comes, he's having to explain to them, okay, guys, it's a little bit different than what you think. I'm not taking over today. It's going to happen a little bit later, but first... I've got to go through the crucifixion. I've got to go through the resurrection. There's going to be some time where the church is going to be all there is. And then I'm going to come back and we're going to do all the stuff that you're talking about. But it's just going to be, there's going to be a little window there. The church still lived like Jesus was going to take over the next day. I mean, John in 1 John, we live in the last days. Peter, because time is drawing short. They all expected the kingdom to break in and take over completely in their lifetime. Well, so should we. So, I was, I was talking with Ryan about it a little bit earlier, and, and I was explaining it in this way. It'd be like, so Ryan is, uh, he's a runner, and um, he, he runs like long, long distance. Both these crazy people, once in a while, they'll drag me with them. But, um, so he, he run like eight, nine, ten miles just for fun, and um, but I was telling him, it'd be like, okay, Ryan, you're going to go do a 5K. That's three, three miles, you know, for those of you guys who don't do kilometers. Um, and he's used to running 10 miles, and he's expecting to go do a race. And it's a 5K. And I'd go to Ryan knowing that he's going to crush it because he's used to doing practice 10-mile runs. And I'd go to Ryan and be like, okay, dude, there's going to be some big mountains. You know, there's some rocky crag portions. There's support where you've got to jump some streams. It's a little bit dangerous. Knowing full well he's going to crush it, but just not wanting him to be surprised that there's some harder portions. That's how I see Jesus instructing the disciples about Matthew 24. Hey, there's going to be wars. There's going to be rumors of wars. Don't worry about it. It's just a part of life. Why? Because they were expecting, with Jesus with them, just to crush it. And I think he was trying to tell them, listen, taking over the world is going to look a little bit different than what you think. Because I truly believe that the apostles expected Jesus to rise to power and then we're just going to cruise. And he's telling them it's not going to go down quite like you think. 
But they so understood the promises, they had the faith to believe that when the Messiah came, the kingdom was going to be established throughout the earth. And he's having to tell them, guys, it's going to be different than what you think. I love that you believe this big, but you've got to change how you see it. It's going to be hard. But let's look at a few things that, um, that, that Jesus talks about. So Matthew 24 is often pointed to as, you know, there, there's not a whole lot good um, in there. It doesn't seem like as we draw near to the end. And um, I would say that's true, but he's telling them about the adversity will, that will come before the fullness of his kingdom arise. And in there, in verse 24, uh, or chapter 24, verse 14, he says, the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all nations as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. What that tells me is the church has the power and the ability to infiltrate all nations and to proclaim the gospel in all nations, because if she couldn't, the end wouldn't come. <clears throat> okay, so let me get back to my notes for a minute here. Okay. So, throughout Scripture, there are time and time and time again where, where God talks about how I'm going to do things in the end of the age. And he's going to pour out his Spirit upon all flesh. And there's going to be a great harvest. And Jesus speaks of the great harvest which is both positive and negative. There's unbelievers and believers that are swept up in the great harvest. So there's going to be a great harvest of believers at the end of the age. We all know that there's going to be a great apostasy and a falling away, but there's also going to be a great harvest of believers that comes at the end of the age. That, too, is in the Scriptures. So now I want to take it one step further and look at, historically, some of the things that have happened when the church got possessed by the Spirit of God, caught a kingdom worldview and perspective, and had an impact on the culture, what that looked like. So, like I said, historically, I have believed and had believed that a great move of God involved the church, and it meant a huge church, and it meant stadiums, and that we had worship services six and seven nights a week. And then after that, you basically went back to your job, and you just did your thing, and it got exciting when you got back to church the next day. And, and that's where I feel like I'm completely wrong. So when you look at history, what happened was when the Spirit of God came, he affected the church powerfully. And we hear about that, and sometimes we call it revival, sometimes we call it an awakening, sometimes we just call it crazy. Um, but when God showed up, stuff happened to people. They got changed completely. They went from being normal, consistent, regular Christians to people that have been caught on fire. And when I say fire, almost driven out of their minds, like Paul says. We're driven out of our minds on behalf of Christ. Those are the type of people that get awakened when God comes to the church. There's also unbelievers who get converted when God comes to the church. And we like telling those stories because it, it's the drunk, like, you know, Charlie and that gets radically changed and now he's freaky and, you know, he's always talking about Jesus. And we like those stories because they weren't Christian before and now they're really Christian. But also it affects the Christians who have just been doing Christianity their whole lives and suddenly they know God. 
And they can't change that. They wouldn't change it. But they, they live differently from that point on. There's something different about them. And those types of people, we hear stories about them often. Um, I, I don't want to spend my whole life telling stories. And that's why we're pressing um, before I tell you some stories. Uh, I just want to say that. Um, when I was going through early on in my Christian walk, and uh, a lady, this beautiful woman, she was like amazing, godly woman. She's in her 60s, and she's telling us all these amazing stories about things that God had done and you know, this group over here and this group over here. And I remember yelling at her um, one day with, like, tears in my eyes, I don't want to just tell stories. I, w- I want them to be my stories. I want to live these stories. Like, I don't want to talk about something that God did somewhere else and that that's good enough for me, knowing he could do it if he wanted to do it. Uh, I want to I live it. I want to see it. That's why we're pressing for what we're pressing. So, uh, some of my favorite stories, uh, I'll share a few. Um, One involved um, John Knox, who started the Presbyterian Church. Um, I know, the Presbyterian Church. If you go back and you, if you were actually able to get into the Presbyterian Church history, you'd find that the founding of the Presbyterian Church was, of course, birthed of the Spirit of God. And... This guy, John Knox, was insane. He was a, he was a prophet. And he's, he's prophesying to kings and rulers things that are going to happen to them. And they would happen to them within 24 hours. And so he was affecting the governmental structure of the nation in which he lived. And shaking his entire country. Um, he cursed the king that he would be hung upside down by his, I think, sons, uh, killed and hung upside down facing east in two days. And it happened, um, but John Knox didn't get to see it because the king had hung John Knox uh, upside down facing east. He was martyred the day before his prophecy was fulfilled. So this guy has this crazy life and starts the Presbyterian Church. The John Wesley, John and Charles Wesley, is a really cool story. So John Wesley, England, um, 1835... John Wesley is, is about actually 1820s. So what we don't know about, we picture England as it was after the Wesleys usually. You know, we picture people like walking around with their wigs on and they have the, uh, the nice little umbrellas that they, and they're going to tea and, you know, everyone's so well dressed and they're so appropriate and dignified and they all use their table manners so well. And, and none of this was the case in the 1820s when John Wesley was in England. It was such a profane culture. He talks about like his, his classmates that were going to the theater and the profanity and the sexuality that was happening in the theater. It wasn't like watching a movie. Like They're actually watching this stuff happen. This was normal life in England. And so John Wesley, he's really passionate. And we did some of the same stuff when, when we were just getting going. Took some of John Wesley's holy club notes and like would just grill each other about being more holy. And, uh, and that was John Wesley. He was so in pursuit of holiness and never felt confidence that he was righteous before God. And all his pursuit of holiness were out of the place of 
he was convicted. He did not have peace before God. And so he went on missions trips. He came to the United States and preached to the Native Americans. He goes back, and in his travels, he runs across this group of people called the Moravians. And these guys, they lived in a town together where everything they did was kingdom. They had their own schools. They had their own businesses. They were completely their own group. But they, it wasn't just a bunch of people hanging out doing church. They had, they had uh, government. They had schools. They had um, businesses. What else did they have? They had a justice system. They had police. All of this stuff they had, the Moravians. And John Wesley got to go see it. And he was like, mind-blowing. He'd never seen a group of people who lived holy all day long, 24 hours a day. He'd only ever seen Christians who were Christians in church and during worship. And beyond that, they might still be Christians, but they had no effect in the way that the culture functioned. And so in here with the Moravians, he got to see, wow, this is totally different. And during his conversations with with them, he's told that, you know, John, your holy club thing is really cool, but the only way you actually get born of God is by grace. And bummer. And um, he was kind of mind blown again. And a few weeks later, he was listening to a sermon. And for the first time, he said, my heart was suddenly warmed. And I knew that I was right before God simply by faith. Well, John Wesley, his brother Charles, also was converted in uh, right around that same time, 1834, 1835. And John, um, he comes to faith with a guy named George Whitfield. And George Whitfield was an amazing preacher. George Whitfield, he was known to be able to preach open air without amplification up to 30,000 people. Ben Franklin actually walked around a crowd to measure it and confirmed that it was actually over 30,000 people that were listening to George Whitfield preach uh, without amplification. So this guy was an amazing street preacher, the original street preacher. So he and Wesley are buddies. And um, this sounds fun. But John is a church guy. And he believed that George Whitfield may have been committing sin every time he preached outside of a church. So he's watching his buddy, like, preach out there, and he's like, I'm pretty sure that's blasphemous and that you're going to get struck by God, you know? And so suddenly George Whitfield feels called to the United States, and he's like, I need someone to replace me as a street preacher in England. Hey, John, what are you doing this weekend? And so he convinces John Wesley that this is a good idea. And he begins to take him with him, and John Wesley starts to preach in the streets. Well, again, if you remember the culture that they were in, it was extremely profane. But not only that, there was this huge gap between the wealthy and the impoverished. And you had this very, very wealthy, profane living upper class and then you had an extremely impoverished lower class who was just vile and corrupt and the, the bars. And this was a big deal in England when Wilberforce pushed for legislation so that they didn't serve or so that they would serve beer in the cities because they only drank liquor in England at that time. So if you drank, the only thing you drank was liquor until you couldn't walk 
and everyone did it. And it was normal. And so this is the culture in which Wesley starts to, to street preach. And so he goes into a place that's full of coal miners. And now these people were known as like the bottom dwellers. It's, it's like what you'd consider the gypsies of today. They're just, there's nothing good about them. And as much as you might want to be positive, it ain't happening with these folks, the coal miners. And so they all live in this big, like, massive dormitory that, sh- that kind of shaped like a corner of concrete. And Wesley goes in there, and the first day he starts out by singing a psalm just before daybreak as all the miners are waking up. And he just stands there singing, and like 30 or 40 of them kind of gather around, and he's like... Whoa, it works. So the next day he comes back and he starts singing again, decides, well, I might as well say something because I got a crowd. And there's about 200 there and he starts to share something and he's like, this is crazy, it's working. And so the third day he goes back and he sings and he sings and he sings and I forget which psalm he sang. And then he spoke and he spoke for like 45 minutes. And by the end of it, he said he was standing there and he's looking at these coal miners and their faces are stained black with coal And there's just streams of tears running down their cheeks as they hear about the mercy of God that would save them by faith. So where Whitfield and Wesley differed was that Whitfield would have preached and left, because that's what he did. He was an open-air preacher. He'd preach and he'd leave. He'd go to the next site and he'd preach to the next group of coal miners. Wesley had seen the Moravians and he saw something that was essential. He saw a kingdom worldview. Whitfield saw a church worldview where all the things that happened happened through the church. Wesley saw how life could be implemented in every area. He saw that if we stay here and live with people, we can teach them how to work. We can teach them how to do family. We can teach them how to bathe. Wesley actually wrote a book under a different pen name because the power of England at the time wouldn't have published it if they'd have known he'd written it. He was telling people how to bathe how many times a day they should bathe, what kind of water they should use, what they should drink, what kind of foods they should eat, because none of this was common sense at that time. It was so vile in England when he was doing this stuff. So Wesley, he starts seeing coal miners come to the Lord, and he sets up Methodism. The Methodist church was born for the sake of, of taking people who knew nothing about how they should live, and he starts putting the scripture in front of them and saying, okay, guys, now you're a Christian. This is how you should live. And it doesn't end when you walk outside these four walls. It has to do with what time you get out of bed in the morning. It has to do with how you work when you go to work. It has to do with how you think of your job and what it means in the big picture of things. It has to do with how you should treat your wife. And how you should not drink with your four-year-old son. It has to do with every single part of this. And we're going to sit down and we're going to go over this stuff until everyone in England knows not only that they're saved by faith, but how to live a godly, holy life. As it comes to education, as it comes to business, as it comes to government, as it comes to da-da-da-da-da. And he did this over and over and over and over and over. The term circuit riders, I don't know if you guys have ever heard of circuit riders, Circuit riders were the guys who would go around from one small group of Methodists to another and check on them, and they'd check on the health of the group, and they would share with the group whatever God was doing in the rest of the place. But they were there to oversee, to make sure it wasn't just becoming church, but that they were teaching people how to live. 
And you know what's happening in England? People couldn't find good workers because all the workers in England were drunk. So nobody showed up to work on time and sometimes at all. And so John Wesley began getting requests in letters from business owners saying, send us more of your Methodists. No one works like a Methodist. And as this happened, more and more of England started to be affected. And it, in, in, John Wesley is credited for sparing England from the same revolution that took France. Now, in this is the slave trade. It's normalcy in England at the time of Wesley. And out of the Wesley movement is, uh, comes a guy named William Wilberforce. Many of you guys know who he is. Um, William Wilberforce was a Methodist. He hid his Methodism because he knew that the government would not respond to him if they knew he was affiliated with that radical John Wesley. So he hid his church affiliation so that he could just be a kingdom guy and affect the culture without them knowing what church he went to. So he completely flipped the church kingdom worldview. He, he abandoned the church worldview completely, disassociated himself almost with the Methodist church so that he could affect the culture as a kingdom of God individual. So Wilberforce, at the end of John Wesley's life, comes into parliament and starts to come up in power. The guy's a great speaker. He's young. He's charismatic. He's got a lot of influence. And he's debating in his head whether or not he should take on the issue of slavery, the slave trade. And John Wesley writes him a letter right near the end of his life. And he says, if this be not God, your enemies surely will reign over you and you will die. You'll perish. But if it be God, then none can stop you. And it's like, wow, that's so cool. But John Wesley now affects this guy, William Wilberforce. So Wilberforce takes it a step further, and he sees the profanity in the government. He sees the profanity in the business world. He was a merchant. He sees the profanity in the justice system, and he starts passing laws that forbid certain acts, public drunkenness. He started a society against the display of public drunkenness and got laws uh, passed against public drunkenness. In England, because he realized it's not enough just to be a Christian in a, a fallen culture. We've got to change the fallen culture. And if I don't pass my laws, then the corrupt are going to pass theirs. And he realized that, hey, this is a war of kingdoms. Someone is going to act and someone's going to win. And if all the Christians are hiding in church, then they'll change not anything and they'll do nothing but complain when the corrupt pass their laws and win their battles in the public sphere. But the church has done nothing. And so I kind of think Wilberforce had the David revelation, any fight I pick, I win. And he's like, I'm going to pick the biggest fight I can find. And it was slavery. And he took it on by himself at the outset with the Clapham's, the Clapham sect. In his first attempt to pass the abolition of slavery, in Parliament, I think he had 12, 4, and 500 and some votes against. If you ever had a nail in a coffin, that would have been it. And yet, he believed that God was with him, and if God was with him, he was in a war in which he could win, and he could change a culture by passing laws 
that ended things that he knew were sinful and corrupt and changing a culture that way. So I think we all know the story that you know, Wilberforce went on to pass numerous laws, not just ending slavery, but he also, first he ended the slave trade, and then right before he died, three days before he died, slavery itself was made illegal because he actually had to take steps, believe it or not. He had to convince people that trading slaves was illegal because having slaves was so normal that nobody could possibly comprehend this was wrong. So the only way he could convince them that having slaves was wrong was to start by telling them that trading slaves was wrong and evil. And you know how he did it? He did it by showing them pictures in his day. He took them onto slave ships, and he had former slaves show them the births that they were in and the scars on their body and the mutilation. He took them in the boats, and he made them smell the putrid aroma of rotting flesh and, and dead bodies. And he did that to persuade people that trading men and women was wrong. That's what it took. That's how twisted a culture was. And once he'd done that, it took him about another 17 years, I think, to convince him that it wasn't just trading humans that was wrong, but owning other humans was wrong. And it was Wilberforce's influence in England that affected the United States and ultimately led one of uh, um, Abe Lincoln's sons was named after him. Will was named after William Overforce. So John Wesley not only influenced a cultural shift in England in every area of life, he also influenced William Wilberforce, who ended slavery in England, who also influenced Abe Lincoln, who was the president who ended slavery in our nation. So tell me that we aren't able to do far more than what we think and what we believe is normal for a church that gets together every Sunday and spends a couple hours worshiping together. We are intended to be a kingdom. We're intended to be a kingdom that is in a war. It's a real war. It's a real conflict. But we can't lose. We're the only ones that are guaranteed victory. The only question is, will we fight? And why I think what we're talking about when we're pressing for more, this is so important, is because I believe that it's going to drive us out of our own churches and into our communities and into our cultures because there's not going to be enough ministry positions. When God moves, there's not going to be enough ministry positions. You're going to have to be a preacher in Starbucks, in Target, in wherever you are, that's going to be your field of ministry. And that's where you're going to bring God's kingdom and all the realities of his kingdom. And you might have started out in college and started to feel a call to ministry. And you started out in school and you were an art major. And somewhere along the line, God started to stir you and you said, I have to quit being an art major because I've got to be in ministry in the church. What if God wanted you to redeem the art industry? What if you're supposed to redefine what culture views as theater? What if theater is supposed to be completely transformed and now we're supposed to be having theatrical displays of God's kingdom and his righteousness in New York City instead of some of the other corruption that goes on there in the theaters? What if you started out as a poli-sci major? Lord bless you. And somewhere along the line you were converted and you're like, I've got to quit doing politics because it's so corrupt. 
I'm going to ministry in the church. What if God were to close the door and said, I don't want another one of you in the church. My church is fine. My church would be a lot healthier if more people were looking for ministry outside the walls. And what if you're supposed to be not ministering in a church, but making the political science arena a church? A house of worship, a house of prayer, that everything about it functions like the kingdom is meant to function. We have a gift in our church. We have a pastor who is willing to tell us things that we don't want to hear. And when I came in, I came and I started out, and I told Pastor Tuttle straight up, I have a call to ministry. And his first statement after telling me to stack chairs was, go get a job. And, uh, you know, we had a little miscommunication for a little while. And, you know, he, he was a little bit slow to, to gather that that meant I was supposed to be in ministry. Period. And uh, over time, um, he found out he was right and I was wrong. Um, I think he might have known it before I did. Just a guess. But what was happening was I couldn't see affecting the world outside of a church worldview. And so I knew I wanted to change the world because it's falling apart, as we see in Scripture and in experience. And yet, the only way I thought that was possible was to have really good church services and to get more people to come. My evangelism practices were, you know, starting out, it was just to try to invite people to church to come see the great worship because it was the only place in town that, you know, didn't have an organ. No, seriously. Um, That was my trick. Dude, there's no organ. No way, I'm coming. I've just never seen that. I don't care about God. I just want to see the no organ worship. But the only way that you could increase God's hand and effect in the world was by getting more people to come into church, and that's not true. A kingdom can take over without anyone ever setting foot in the church. If there are kings and queens that are ruling in places of authority... And wherever you are in your business or your work or your education is a place of authority because of the kingdom that you belong to. They might not ever need to come to church. That'd be okay because our church isn't that big. So we have a gift here where our pastor will tell us, you know what, we don't need another full-time pastor. We need someone who's carrying the gospel of the kingdom every day of their life in the community. And they're demonstrating it, and they're speaking of it, and they're sharing it, and they're touching others with it. That's ministry. Ministry happens in the workplace. It happens in the school. It happens cleaning toilets. It happens watching babies, and it happens from a pulpit. It's all ministry because it's all unto the Lord, and it's all by his kingdom. So I say all that to tell you that we're crazy enough here to believe that the things that John Wesley saw in England, we're going to get to see here. We don't just think that Water's Edge is going to become a bigger church. That may happen. We'd all be excited if it did. But what we actually believe is going to happen is that our entire community and the culture of our community and the different spheres spheres of influence in our community are going to become kingdom-oriented. They're going to be done for God And like he would want. And that's from education to government to business to justice system, all of it. That's what we're pressing for. Because you know what? To me, 
there's not enough churches in town to get all the people in town into right now. If, if God really stepped in, so you guys know the Hebrides Revival? You guys familiar with the Hebrides Revival? Love this story. I was actually right there, so close. Another story for another day, but the Hebrides Revival was amazing because right here, there's a group of people praying. You know what they're praying for? More God. More. It doesn't look like it should. Our kids aren't walking with you. Our bars are full and our churches are empty. We need more of you, God. Give us more. And there was like a couple ladies started it, and then there was about six people praying in a barn. And suddenly, the presence of God was felt throughout the island of Lewis. And it was so thick that people were wandering from their homes. They were wandering miles to get to churches. And they were standing outside of churches because they hoped that when the door would open, someone could help them find out how to be saved. All they knew was that a power was driving them and convicting them of their sin. And that they knew that they needed God. And it happened in an entire island. The churches were full. They didn't have enough churches to fit all the people. The bars were having to become prayer meetings, and they were closing up as bars. And one of the things that happened there was every bar on the island was closed and has never been reopened. Because it didn't just end in the church, it affected every other area of their life. That's what we're praying for. We're praying, like the people in the barn in Lewis, that God would make himself known in such a way that people would go to anyone that they think is a Christian who can help them be relieved of this guilt that they feel before God. There's a story of people were running to the police department. Uh, the guy's accent who tells the story, Duncan Campbell, is beautiful. Um, they were going to the police department because the sheriff there was a God-fearing and well-saved man. And they believed that he might be able to help them find out how they might be saved. They were going to anyone that they thought might know God. That's what we're praying for. That's what we're contending for. I hope every church in town gets filled. But even if every church in towns get filled, there's thousands more people. There's not room in these churches because they're not big enough. You need the dome. and The dome's not big enough. So that means that we need to be present as carriers of the kingdom, changing the culture and making ourselves known so that when God would step down, people know where they can come that they should be saved. That's the strategy. That's what we're praying for. There's some amazing videos of the transformation series where God actually, he heals the land, which is biblical. So it's not just a turning of people's hearts and bringing them into churches. He actually heals the land. Fiji had a a reef, a coral reef that was dying, and it was a fishing community, and the whole community was, was literally dying. The people were dying because they couldn't feed their families because the fish came to the coral reef to eat, and as the coral reef died, the fish dried up, and so the people were dying. And they prayed and prayed and fasted, and when God came, he actually, literally, they saw fire come down and heal the reef, and the fish returned to save the community. God healed the land. In uh, Guatemala, he healed the land, and their crops, they're producing carrots like 
well, I have an orange shirt on, so they were like the size of my my upper arm. They were like they're like this big around, and you look at the crops that they're producing in this area where the Spirit of God came, compared to just up the valley, regular carrots, God carrots. He affected their crops. Well, you know what? That's biblical too. Deuteronomy twenty-eight. Their barns will be overflowing. So why would we settle for good church? I love our worship. I love our teachers. This is a pastor joke. But why would we settle for that when there's so much more we could have? There's a kingdom that can be established. Jesus is going to come back and culminate all of his kingdom with his return. But there is so much that we can do before he comes back. There's nowhere in scripture, nowhere, that you can tell me that the expansion of his kingdom was intended to stop. And then suddenly he would come back and start it all over again. So I'd, I guess I'd rather be wrong, assuming that there's more that we can establish, than be wrong finding out, oh God, there was so much more we could have done, and yet we never acted. So that's why we're pressing. That's why we're praying. Because what we look around and see, both in church and out, is not enough. It's not enough. There's so much more. There's still divorce happening in our city. There are still children being aborted or lost in uh, the womb. Come on. There's so much more. There's still corruption happening in government. There's still poverty happening that could be quelled. That's why we pray. That's why we press. The good news is, God has actually spoken to multiple different people in churches throughout the last 50 or so years. And in fact, when we were praying in Republic, we found out that some of these words go back 80 years about something that God is going to do in the Upper Peninsula, about changing everything about it. And in Marquette, about bringing an outpouring of His Spirit that would, would touch all of the community. It would change the entire community. And then it would, it would go outward and it would start to affect other communities. So not only do we have a biblical grounds, but we have a prophetic grounds that this is what the Spirit's saying to this church, to this city, to this people, us. And so the question, the only, the only question that remains is whether or not we will lay hold of this violently advancing kingdom and advance it with God. Whether we will say, God, we have to have more. What we have is not enough. You've got to give it to us. Even if we don't fully understand it or know what it's going to look like, we want it. Because what we have is not enough. So we're going to pray. Remember, Cody's going to share next week. And then in a couple weeks, I'm going to show you a really cool video clip that destroyed us in 2007 and really it gave us a vision for this type of thing but it also helped position our hearts uh, so that we would be participant in it rather than bystanders so father we thank you for your kingdom we thank you that your ways are higher than our ways and we thank you that you have things in store for us that we could not dream up or imagine God, you have dreams and visions about what our city could be. You have dreams and desires that you intend to see fulfilled in our day for our land. 
So we only agree with you. That's all we're doing. We're just agreeing with you and we're saying, yes, Lord. The bride agrees with the Spirit and we say, come. Come fulfill your word. Come pour out your Spirit upon all flesh. That your sons and daughters would prophesy. God, we want to have schools where our kids are raised hearing about you. Just like you did early on here with our universities, our Ivy League schools, that you, all, you started them all as seminaries. Father, we want our schools to be virtual seminaries where our kids are being raised in godliness. God, we want our government to reflect your government. We want our justice system to be just, not corrupt. Father, the foster system, the state-run systems, Lord, that are struggling, they're doing the best that they can. Father, we want to see those redeemed, that not one child is fatherless. In Malachi 4, you say that you will turn the hearts of the fathers back to the sons and the sons of the fathers, and that's a mark of your kingdom. And we pray that for our city and for our churches. So, Father... Ultimately, we ask for more of you. We acknowledge that what we have is not everything that you intend or offer for us. As much as we are thankful for what you've given us, we acknowledge that we don't have the fullness. And as Paul said, we press on to lay hold of that for which you laid hold of us. God, we believe that you laid hold of us to fulfill a purpose that you have for this place. And so bring about again that hunger for us. We love you. We love you. Amen.